Today's guest on the podcast is Lane Lamoureux. He's a photographer, filmmaker, and one of the very few people to ever live to tell the story of a second chance at life. Lane, welcome to the show. Dude, it's good to finally, uh, yeah, be face to face with you like this. Thinking about how we first crossed paths over a year ago now. Yeah. Just happened to have a Ronin. Yeah. I was salivating when I saw that thing. Like, oh man, what I'd give to have that thing for three days. I know. I love that. Yeah. And now I have it. one. All right. So yeah, a little background of, of, of who I am and how I got to where I, where I'm at. Well, grew up in Southern Arizona and camera fell into my lap pretty early and I just loved, I'm a very, very sentimental person and I just, I got to have pictures like pictures just take you back in time. And I was often dumbfounded that not a lot of things were being photographed. Like we're having this family picnic in this beautiful place. And granted, you will remember it for the rest of the summer. But how about 10, 20 years from now? How are we going to really transport ourselves back here? So I was probably eight or nine when I'd get these little point and shoots. You wind them up, take a bunch of pictures, drop them off. And then you just, as a kid, it was so tedious to wait the five days to get your film developed and finally when they came out man oh it was like christmas every time and right after high school joined the marine corps beyond that spent some time in college uh got into fighting wildfire that was fun i got hooked on that and the pictures and the video that i got out there on the fire line no one has that sort of stuff you have to be a firefighter to get it and i just stayed with that sort of thing and Got my degree in education and 2013 changed everything. Had a pretty significant life altering event. And I'll, I'll get to that in a bit. That's a pretty big story. It's pretty dense. So it sounds like you've always had a camera. When did you get your first camera and how did you, I guess, when did it become more than just a hobby or just a thing for fun? Man, it, it ran through my blood. Oh. I would see things walking by and the composition of something would line up and you would just stop in your tracks and you would just have to immediately compose that image. And I just developed a landscape portfolio over the years. And now with social media, I'm able to get my images out there to a wider audience and occasionally get contacted by someone uh, for some of my landscape shots. I want to buy a print and that is so so validating and vindicating to have my efforts appreciated like someone else who's probably looking across thousands of different images something about my photograph stood out and they want to buy my photograph and they want it on their wall this is more the video side this this is what made me the videographer I am today because I never went to school for videography. Mm-hmm. What made me a videographer was I would all throughout the fire season, I'd just be snapping pictures a lot of the time when no one knew I was taking them videos and pictures. And then my favorite day, probably in the entire year, definitely the favorite day of the fire season was the end of the year party. Cause at the end of the year party, 
For one, we're done with the fire season. So we're talking about winter trips to Thailand and Costa Rica and whatnot. But the capstone, the climax of the end of the year party is the end of the year video. And it used to be a PowerPoint slideshow. And I came in I'm like, well, I could kick it up a notch. And, and just, I would just love clicking play and not even watching the screen, but watching the audience and watching what gives them an emotional rise, what makes them laugh, what makes them gasp. And every year I just want to make a better video than I did the year before. And I learned more skills, more skills. And, and I took the initiative when I was jumping out of McCall, we were playing this old tour video from the 1980s. It was a VHS tape, borderline embarrassing clicking play, but it was pretty comical too, watching that sort of stuff. So I took the initiative with the jump base. I just said, you know what? I can improve upon this. I've got the footage. If you just give me a week to work on a new tour video, I can kick it up a notch. And they're like, really? Well, sure thing. So I busted something out, put it up on YouTube. Bam, it's got over 50,000 views. And, and that's what really started to establish a name for myself. And then after my life-altering event, after my accident, the National Fire Center was familiar with that video. And so while I was in the wheelchair, they reached out to me when I was on light duty and said, Hey, Lane, we know you can make videos, you know, fire. How would you like to make fire training videos? And I was like, really? Do you know that this is what I want to do for my life? This is my lifelong dream to make fire training videos and get paid for it. Man, I was so stoked. I don't think there's anything more fulfilling than watching a room with a few hundred people laughing or cheering or crying or whatever it is, you know, totally engaged with the piece of content that you created. And that's, it's such a special moment, you know, to have that. It's so empowering. It puts wind in my sails. That's what makes me want to make a better video every year. I love the reaction. And I want to make it even better the next year. So the story continues. You've, you've kind of always had a camera in your hand. You were firefighting for some time. You were filming things, doing the recap videos for them. You got injured. You then began creating firefighter training videos, which was your dream job. Then what? Well, scattered and sprinkled in between there, I started shooting weddings because my fire buddies are like, Lane, you know how to operate a camera. Can you shoot my wedding? And yeah, sure. And at first it was for free. And now that I've upped my camera equipment, I, I generate a little money from it. And weddings, pardon the tangent, but weddings are, I love shooting weddings. And not a lot of people say that. I just love when you're involved in something where mistakes are not an option when every neural pathway is focused on a single task and you have got to be on your A game. You have got to be two steps ahead at all times. You have to be putting things in motion before they're needed. That's what I love about shooting weddings. It's intense. There's no way I could shoot more than a couple a month, but I'm shooting my 14th wedding at the end of this month. And and, and that's something that motivates me. I, I love knowing that these photographs I take 
are valued. They're timeless. You know, they're, they, they go on beyond generations, you know, the same photograph. I, I'm fortunate to have access to my great, great grandparents wedding photo. You know, that photographer had no idea that great, great grandson would be looking at that and valuing it. So who, who's your, who inspires you? One of the original landscape photographers, Ansel Adams, the way he would plan his shots well in advance. And he would, he would earn them. He would hike. He would, he'd be out in the elements and his landscape photos are, have a lot to do with public policy and, and where the national park service is today because of Ansel Adams. So he motivates me. So Ansel Adams, big source of inspiration. And then to put it a little more broadly, I've just been so inspired by the planet earth series and the behind the scenes, like what it took for these folks to create these images. They didn't stumble on them. They earned them. Some of these took weeks or months just to get a 60 second or less clip. And it is so incredibly inspiring. I mean, they're out there in the natural world and they're, they're as they're really going to great lengths to not become a part of what they're photographing of really separating themselves. So we get a view of a natural world and I take a lot of inspiration from that. Yeah. The, uh, did that, the planet earth too. Crazy inspired. So inspiring. And you're right. The behind the scenes, it's incredible. You, you see them running around with these Ronins I mean, the places that they were hiking with as much equipment they had and the rooftops and the tracks they were setting to track the monkeys and like, yeah, so inspiring. And, and with that said, and it's made me think of something else. As humans, we like to know how things work, right? We're, we're, all, we're curious. So behind the scenes really fulfills that curiosity. And I think it also shows that creating this stuff is not easy. It is hard work. And that, that makes, I think that should make all of us feel a little better when we go out in the field and shoot. We're not going to get the greatest, it's not going to walk. We got to, you know, put up with some pain, get bit by a hundred mosquitoes sometimes. You know, these behind the scenes things, I love it when they show the difficulty involved because all we see is the end product. And for example, like I just did some paragliding and I made this great little video of my flight and it looks like, oh, oh, that was easy. There's nothing to it. But what I didn't include is the fact that I landed 350 feet below this launch and it was a very, very steep launch. And what I didn't include was the fact that I had to pack all my stuff up and hike up with about. 40 to 50 pounds of gear on my hands and knees, 350 feet up. Just, I, I swear, I was nothing but palm, palm and foot, palm and foot going up this hill. And I didn't include that. And, and I didn't film it either, unfortunately. So it's only me. No one else saw it. But that was, that was one of the toughest things I've done in the last few years, just this last Monday. 
350 foot hike up a steep hill on hands and knees with 50 pounds of gear. I think it's so important for people to see that because, A, yeah, a lot of people do think things are just easy. Right. Or they think you just got lucky. Or they don't, they don't know. All they see is the finished product and they come to their own conclusion about how you came about that. So with that said, uh, what top three tips would you give to a brand new photographer? As anyone that's willing, that's seeking to create visual masterpieces... And it's easy to put those in the boxes, like are you a portrait photographer, wedding, landscape, commercial? You know, I could break it down like that. But in the end, we all want to create an image, whether it's a wedding, landscape. We all want to create an image that stops people in their tracks, that makes people take a step back and maybe reevaluate things, either in this particular image or maybe it... It has a reflective value. So as someone that's really aspiring to create these visual masterpieces, I would encourage them to think about what are you trying to say in your image? What is, what is your image communicating? I would think about that. And then I would plan. I would, you know, not planning in the uh, formulaic sense, but I would Get out a topographic map or spend some time on Google Earth if you're looking to create a, a landscape shot and find a really, really cool place and then study how the lighting would affect it at certain times and, and at certain seasons. You know, I think we often overlook the fact that the sun, December 31st, is a world apart from what the sun's doing on June 30th in the northern hemisphere. You're going to get entirely different shots. And one thing to keep in mind is try to do things that no one else is doing. And one way to go about that is shoot when no one else is shooting, when it's stupid cold. So say December 31st, when the sun is uh, taking its furthest southern trajectory, you're going to get entirely different lighting on canyon walls. And you have an opportunity at that time of the year to create an image that baffles people because they've never seen the shadows hit that cliff that way. So I would encourage people to study the lighting, you know, based on the seasons and, and, and plan, you know, and really think about it and to continue to, uh, just take chances. That first image might not work out, but keep taking them. Words of wisdom right there. Uh, you have some pretty cool hobbies. You're not one that's afraid to just go out by himself and camp for a couple of days, hike, backcountry, flying, whatever it is, whatever it may be. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your hobbies, your outdoor hobbies, and yeah, we'll start there. Well, I really like to feel small. I think feeling small just brings about this profound sense of humility and it dampens anything that might be causing us some anxiety. And what I mean by that is I like going out in the natural world where you're in this big, huge canyon that took thousands of years to form. And it doesn't care about you being behind on your bills. This canyon, this water is going to flow regardless of what uh, of these things that you think are so important in your life. And feeling small like that just has a way of, of just adding some clarity. And then a lot of my 
my other hobbies, this is just a little more of my own personal narrative. I've always gone after things that are difficult, that are just outside of my proven capabilities. And it's, I think, one of the reasons why I have uh, several awards for most improved player, because when I do something initially, I suck. I suck bad, but I keep going and I adapt and I learn and and I grow. And I think that's really just had a way of creating this sense of resilience. Like as a skinny dude, I had no, I was out of my place on the defensive line in, in high school. And then joining the Marine Corps as a machine gunner, as a skinny, tall, uncoordinated ginger, and then getting into fighting wildfire. Like I've always just done things that were a little difficult to the point where I've never done anything like it. And failure is a real possibility. But doing these sort of things, it's led to these profound life experiences. And not, not everything I've done has worked out. But when it does, it's worth taking that chance. It's worth going after something that may have a 10% chance of success. It may or may not work out. But if it does, it'll change you. Now that we're on the subject of the outdoors and adventure, what's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? Well, I've got some things in the works that I'm planning on. But okay, no doubt about it. This is like the highlight of my life. So... So I'm I'm a paraglider pilot. And at this point, I've been flying for 10 years, over 2,000 flights. Started flying in 2006. This would have been 2010. I was flying. And of course, I'm filming. I'm filming all this stuff. You know, it has a lot of value, both as an artistic dimension, but also as an educational thing. Like, I learn a lot. When I review stuff, bam, I, I get new insights when I see it a second time when my feet are on the ground. So this was, would have been 2010 in Sun Valley, Idaho. I, I launched on the top of Mount Baldy. And before taking off, I took all the foam out of my harness and I stuffed in my sleeping bag, my jet boil camp stove, two gallons of water, food. And when I took off from that mountain, I told myself, wherever I land is where I sleep. At first, that flight was difficult. I had a hard time gaining any altitude. I thought, oh, is this just going to be some sort of lame sled ride down the hill? And about a half mile away, I see this golden eagle turning in a thermal. And if anyone knows how to fly, it's these creatures. So I flew right over this golden eagle. And I swear to you, we were wingtip to wingtip doing 360s in this thermal for about two and a half minutes. And in that time, I climbed about 5,000 feet. I looked at my altimeter and I'd hit 14,200. And it was cold, stupid cold. But with that much altitude, I had so many options. And that's my mantra for life. Altitude equals options. I could go places. And I knew the weather, I knew the forecast to line up with, with more southerly winds. So I found a ridge and I flew for, I flew 26.2 miles. Well, exactly a marathon. You know, I sunk a little bit and I made another climb out by the, I don't remember if it's a Lost River Range or the Pioneer Mountains, but it was 26 miles southeast of Sun Valley. I landed on the top of a ridge at about 10,000 feet. 
and I unpacked all my stuff, set up camp for the night, enjoyed a beautiful sunset, and had a nice rest. And then the next morning, after enjoying my coffee, I was just waiting for the upslope winds to start again because I honestly had to be to work in, in two days. This was in the middle of fire season. I couldn't be skipping out on work in July. And when the upslope wind started around 10.30, I laid out my glider. I launched again, cored another thermal up, and flew back to my truck. That's probably the coolest outdoor adventure I've had. That's incredible. Wow. That's so, and it's mind blowing. So you're by yourself. Mm -hmm. You're obviously not, I mean, maybe you're a little afraid. You were you, any fear at all, or was it just like, yeah, no big deal. Just, you know, I think working as a smoke jumper really built in this wherewithal, the situational awareness when you're in remote country, just constantly identifying contingency plans, road access, where's the nearest town, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen, and what would I do about it? But it's still scary, and I think it needs to be scary. I think that that level of fear is healthy. I think it sharpens your senses to some extent. It really deepens the memory, too. When the memory has a little fear with it, you don't forget it. It's like what they say, you know, on the other side of fear is, is bliss. And I know for me personally, the scariest things I've ever done in my life and the scariest moments, most of them have also been the most euphoric moments and beautiful and just such just amazing times. And like, like you said, I'll never forget those moments. And they wouldn't be that way if there wasn't this barrier, this barrier to entry. This, if it was easy, it wouldn't be worth it. No. I think we're at a perfect point, you know, to talk about your big moment. You had a very big moment in your life that most people will never even know of someone or hear of someone that's had an experience like this. You know, it's just a known fact that these ex these types of experiences have happened before, but most people will never know someone or hear a firsthand story. So I feel really blessed and thankful that, you know, you're going to share your story with the AOV community. Yeah. You know, a day I'll never forget day. My family will never forget either. January 27th, 2013 waking up in Southern California at the base of the San Jacinto mountain range. We woke up, we were out there camping a few friends and I We were camping at this flight park, a place for paragliding and speed flying. Woke up to this thick layer of fog so we took our time, had a nice casual morning, you know, probably had three cups of coffee and just waiting for the fog to lift. And it's just a bunch of pilots hanging out, shooting the breeze. And slowly the fog is lifting and then it's like, all right, time to head up to launch. And I looked at the weather forecast. It was, it was, uh, when I first woke up that morning, it was, uh, west southwest winds six to eight. Huh. Like, oh, wow, perfect. Get up to launch, check it again, and they upped the forecast a little bit. Now the winds were forecasted 8 to 12. Okay, a little stronger, um, but still just spot on. And, oh, man, the, the conditions were looking great. And I laid out my glider, and I launched. I had It was such an easy launch. It was such a seemingly tame, mellow day. 
very unsuspecting. I launched, immediately started going up, no surprise. We had 12 mile an hour winds hitting the slope and they're deflected upward. So I climbed, made some passes, climbed about a thousand feet within, a, within just a few minutes. And then I pushed out over the valley to lose some altitude and fly back to the ridge and climb up again for fun. And it was probably about two hours into the flight, the fog, the marine layer started to burn off. And the earth was getting spotlighted. Just these these spotlights of sun were just baking certain parts. And other areas were still in that marine layer. So they were cold. So there was this big gradient in temperature between the two. So I, I mentioned that because the meteorologist that investigated my accident cited that as one of the factors that contributed to what I experienced, what's been identified as a microburst. So I was up there flying along this ridge when I was dealing with probably 15 mile an hour winds, maybe up to 20 occasionally. And then suddenly without warning, the winds just started cranking and all of a sudden I was going backwards. I got on my speed bar, did everything I could to to get as much forward penetration as possible. And I was still going backwards. And I was trying to maintain a cool head, but I saw very, very few options. I was at the hands of, of the wind here. And I thought, well, maybe I could turn and run and fly all the way to Palm Springs. I thought, well, damn, they got all those windmills out there. Don't want to be flying anywhere near those things. So I just stayed aimed into the wind. I tried to angle out of the of the strong breeze a little bit. And then, man, I just hit this point where I knew this might be it. I just knew it. It was really, really rocky country. And I was getting blown over the backside of what we call a knife ridge, this really steep ridge. So all the air hits the front of it and it curls over just like water eddies around a rock. So on that backside, the air is essentially going straight down down and I was about a hundred feet up and I'm getting pushed back into this stuff we call rotor and I knew I knew I was going to lose my whole wing so I got my hand on my backup parachute and I got ready to throw it and I didn't have time to think about a whole lot else I was just you know I was in really like oh shit mode here and the sound the sound is something I just can't erase from my memory I get pushed in that backside my entire glider just folds into itself, completely collapses, and I begin a near free fall. I huck my reserve. My reserve wouldn't deploy. I was in these downward winds. In fact, my reserve probably worked more as an anchor. And then between 80 to 100 feet up, I hit with my right foot first with enough force to drive my femur through my acetabulum, through this this socket on my pelvis went through there, snapped my pelvis off the spine and drove it all the way up under, under my second rib under all the way to T10 in your spine. So I'm laying there. I'm already pretty screwed. And then my reserve decides to open up and starts dragging me in these 60 mile an hour winds on this backside, my reserve is just dragging me. And then I get three fractures in my arm. I take a rock through my helmet that that hits my skull. And I end up losing the vision in my right eye. That's something I don't often mention, but I'm pretty much blind in one eye. 
you know, sustained a traumatic brain injury with that. And then with my pelvis and my ribs, I've got two major arteries cut and I'm bleeding out internally. And it doesn't take long before I, before I slip into another world. I was really, really fortunate to crash near the top of a ridge where a helicopter could easily land and the crew only had to walk maybe 200 feet to pick me up and just carry me right in. So that all went really well. So we activated EMS, folks were on scene, and I was loaded up in a helicopter. This dude, his name's Scott Warren. Scott Warren was the first, the first of many instruments that were fundamental to my survival. He was first. He, he made the first step. And he put himself, he exposed himself. Because he, th- he flew down through some of that rough air. He did a spiral dive, rapidly descended, landed on the front end of that ridge, and immediately saw that I was in rough shape, like I, I might not make it. So Scott took the initiative to, to get EMS rolling. And there was another pilot that was way up in the air still, and he served as a relay. So Scott radioed up to the pilot in the air who then radioed to the folks in the landing zone to call 911 and it's like man all these variables if people weren't where they were when they were there i wouldn't be here so scott did what it took man and he probably had the longest 45 minutes of his life as he waited there with his buddy just bleeding out pain beyond description just waiting there with his friend hoping to see that helicopter any minute folks arrived on scene it was a pretty quick scoop and just loaded me up transferred me to life flight life flight flew me to riverside county regional medical center and there with i was there within two hours of of impact about an hour and 47 minutes i think the timeline is i had bled out and flatlined and the first time I don't know how long I was dead the first time. One time when I I, I died multiple times. I know one time I was dead for seven minutes. And let's just say when you're dead, you don't stop living. There's a lot more to that. But just getting back to my survival, someone spectacular did CPR. And the coolest story that goes along with this was where my mom came into play. So I'm in extremely rough shape. I've got my pelvis and my ribs. I just took a rock to the skull. I'm knocked out cold. Let's just face it. They can't save everyone in the hospital. They have to triage, decide who's savable, who isn't. I know the person who had to make the decision about whether or not I was going to survive. She was on the fence for a while. It's like, wow, it's pretty marginal. Can we save this guy? And while she's deliberating over this intense decision, my mom shows up and my mom grabs my hand and the charge nurse, the triage nurse watches this and she sees my unconscious hand suddenly squeeze my mom's fingers and there's a quick but notable improvement in my vitals. And she said that was a point in which she decided they're going to try to save me. And my mom wouldn't have gotten there if it weren't for the acts of several people I will never meet. Because I was in California. My mom is working at the airport, Sky Harbor, Phoenix, U.S. Airways at the time. And she gets a phone call from a social worker 
And the social worker just says, your son's been in a terrible accident. We are going to try to keep him alive long enough for you to say goodbye. So with that heavy message, my mom just abandons her post at the gate she's running in Sky Harbor and just starts hauling down the jetway to the next flight going to Southern California. The plane has already backed out of the jetway and she pleads with the gate agent. She's like, you don't understand. I have to be on that plane. And people love my mom. So the gate agent goes out on a limb, radios the pilot, explains the situation. Pilot brings the plane back into the into the jetway. The flight is oversold. Someone I'll never meet volunteered their seat. My mom got on. And if my mom wouldn't have made it to where she did and grabbed my hand when she did, it made all the difference. All these people I'll never meet. One way, dude, that a lot of this ties into photography was, so coming out on the other side, you know, I was in a coma for nine weeks and it took a while to come to grips with what had happened, but probably just as important, what am I going to do now? I took everything I had in my savings and I put it all in a photography. I went for the nicest, for the camera with the highest resolution. I bought some great uh, wide aperture lenses. I went big. I went all in. And then taking these pictures, I just felt compelled that these photographs, they're different. They're different than they were six months ago, than before my accident. And they're different because this is my second life. This is my new life. And occasionally you, you hear people say, you only live once. <laughs> well, I, uh, I disagree. And now you see it on my computer, the way I, I name all my photos. The, they all have the, the two letters NW. And that means new world. And all my photos, everything post-accident is found in a folder, photos from a new world. Because that's everything I'm doing is in a new world. You know, I have two birthdays now. I have the day I was born with my twin. And now I have January 27th, the, the day I was first resuscitated. Yeah, my photographs, they, they have this new dimension. And it's really changed the way I relate to mortality. And I find so much beauty in mortality now. I like images that that demonstrate things, things that we're uncomfortable with, things like tragedy, things like pain, things like the finite nature of things. I like images that convey the fact that we're not going to be in this world forever. Our, our time in this world is limited. And, and that, again, makes, us, makes me feel small. I like big, grand landscapes, and I like getting familiar with artistic dimensions of mortality because it makes me feel small. And, and I have to say that when, when I feel that way, becoming familiar with mortality, some things matter a lot more and other things matter a lot less. What people think about you is damn near meaningless. The things that matter a lot more are connections. Yeah, what I mean, what does matter? After going through such a life-changing event, how did you look at, I mean, what was different? Did you look at the world more differently? Did you 
you know, what changed? Big things changed. Definitely. Yeah. After I came out of my coma and finally came to grips with what had happened, because it took a while coming out of my coma, man, let's just say just because you're technically unconscious doesn't mean, doesn't mean your mind stops. I have very vivid memories of, of the nine weeks I was in a coma. I could tell you when I came out of my coma, I could tell you everyone that came to visit me because I could hear my ears were still open and people I'd hear their voices and it would just transfer me to some lucid dream world where I'm interacting with them and, and getting, you know, experiencing this, the end of life and, a foot in the other world, I felt like something that, that transcends, that, that knows no end. One thing that knows no end are the connections that we make with other people. There's no end to that. That goes, I feel in my experience that it went with me. And, and I know this is a little heavy for a photographer podcast, but man, hold on. This ain't a photography podcast. Visual. This is the art of visuals podcast. We talk about everything. Right. Visual inspiration. Yeah. It's just real real conversations with people from the community. Yeah. Yeah, man, if you're open to a few of the details. Yeah, absolutely. So much, so much of this experience is hard to describe simply because the English language is not equipped for this. We don't have... People don't typically, people don't rarely, only until recently, experience death and then come back. That's new. So so that experience from the other side, you come back into this world with this vocabulary. It's like, wow, how do you describe this profound sense of, of overwhelming love and boundless compassion? a world that knows no end ends are a construct of this world things don't end things continue and they evolve they are constantly moving i felt like my death experience was simply going from just like you'd go from junior high to high school it was like graduating and just like you take some things with you like maybe your grades or something you take i felt like the thing that i took with me that I was able to see. So I'm certainly not the first to say that you see your whole life flash before your eyes. And what I saw, I remember standing on this hillside. It was it was in southern Utah, and it was just sagebrush and rock and sticks. And as I pan my head back and forth across this arid landscape, every nuance of the terrain symbolized a life experience. It symbolized an interaction. I saw it all from, you know, from my first kiss to my first denial, you know, all the good, all, I saw it all. And I just remember panning my head back and forth. And I don't know how long I did that for, because in this, in this world, I didn't feel like time was relevant. It was no longer a factor. So that moment solidified my value of, of connections and experiences. So I felt like that's something that you take with you. That's incredible. 
It's just so inspiring. Every time I hear it, and I think anyone listening to this with half a brain will feel the same way, that I feel it's just so touching, so inspiring. It makes, it always makes me just want to like conquer the world. You know, like you have no excuses. Like quit, quit your bitching and just live your life. And it takes a lot of courage to do that. Freedom and more life is is truly for brave and courageous people. And you still go through your ups and downs just like anyone else. But that that's part of life. It's all about how you react to it. And then the, rather than resisting, it's just like, okay, like. Yeah. You're, yeah. That's, that's, yeah, I'm not surprised that happened necessarily. I guess just kind of how it, sometimes things are good and sometimes things are bad. bad. Right. But yeah, it's all about. It's like you're on a river. And you'll occasionally hit some class three rapids and they're rough. You try to stay in your boat. If you get knocked out of your boat, you swim back in. There's some things you can affect. You know, you can alter your course a little bit. But a lot of the time, things are are factoring into your life that are beyond your control. And you can't you can't control everything. And if you try to, you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to be just totally inefficient. So you just got to think about what you can control and that's your reactions. Just like you said, you can't control the things that happen to you, but you can control how you react to them. And that, I think that's what defines character that and, and character is not truly tested nor truly formed without these challenging circumstances, without having your control minimized, without having, without being put in a struggle. Imagine the worst possible thing happening and what are you going to do about it? Not to say that it will, 1% chance, but I think it's therapeutic and very helpful to at least, and I don't think it's negative because if anything, I think it helps you value a functional leg and, you know, more when you acknowledge the fact that you can lose things, things that you take for granted, you can lose them and spending some time there to to remember that these things we take for granted we're we're so fortunate to have what we have absolutely we're talking about you know a little motivation and inspiration i know you're a quote guy you always have the best quotes every time we go out for a beer or something and talk you always have the best quotes so why don't you share with us your favorite quote I got a super short one, and then I have one that I think really describes my character. My super short one, this is just helpful for me when things aren't going well. Because I I get knocked down. I get knocked down hard. I got knocked down really hard this summer. I had a a pretty intense seizure that pretty much forced me out of the game for a while. I I couldn't even speak for about 10 days because I bit through two-thirds of my tongue. And those sort of moments, one quote comes in. To mind that really just helps me maintain doesn't necessarily make me smile and laugh and get all all rainbows and unicorns but it it acknowledges the fact that suffering is real and it's such a simple quote i think it's seneca a greek philosopher who said sometimes just to live is an act of courage you know i that quote comes in so handy when I'm like, oh, you know, I got these bills. I'm not doing so well. The future is uncertain. Oh, man, I was in a dark place a few weeks ago. 
And that quote, sometimes to live is an act of courage. That's what helped me get out of bed in the morning. So that's, that's a quote I always keep in my hip pocket, just, just when you need to maintain altitude when you've really descended. But the other quote that I think really describes my character, that really speaks to me, Theodore Roosevelt just put it into words. When I read this, I thought, that's me, man. You're totally describing my outlook. Theodore Roosevelt said, Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits that neither enjoy much nor suffer much, for they live in a gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. Dare mighty things. That's how I roll. Theodore Roosevelt. I love it. Last thing before we wrap this up, we're getting a little short on time here. Leave us with some some parting words of wisdom. You specifically, I feel like I've been blessed to know a lot of very special people all over the place. And you by far, Lane, are, dude, you're one of the most inspiring people, one of the most authentic people, one of the most real with that term real comes so many different things, but it's so rare that you just meet a real person that's not, you know, fronting or showing off. And there's, there's, there's levels to everything, right? Like maybe someone's not a show off, but there's times where they, they dress it up or they talk a big game for this or that. And like, you just, you're just one of those guys that's just like the realest dude ever. Like, you're just like, yeah, like met a chick, went great. Met another chick, got turned down. Like, yeah, this worked out. That didn't work at all. This was great. That sucks. Like, yeah, like, and, and that's just, it's so refreshing. And I would just love, you know, I'd be honored for you to just leave the audience with some some words of wisdom just about, art and an adventure and, and, and living life and accomplishing your goals and chasing your dreams and yeah. and this yeah the whole nine man yeah. yeah dude well i i i'm totally with you i see how i see how there's this push to portray things as different than they are i feel like sometimes we're almost not allowed to have difficult moments or we're not allowed to outwardly express struggle. And I think, I think that may well set me apart is I'm just so uh, transparent in everything, things that go well, things that don't go well. I kind of unload it all. And I think that level of honesty might freak some people out. But tell you what, it's really one, one over some very authentic friends. And the friends I have, man, you, you can't, you can't beat it. And I don't think you get that level of authenticity without exposing yourself. You, you got to expose the fact that things, things are difficult sometimes, or things, things go well. You just got to be honest with everything when things go well, when they don't go well, you gotta, you know, I think not being afraid of exposing your mistakes is huge. I have screwed up royally as a visual creator. I'd say two things. 
for one, expose everything, expose the beauty, the difficulty, put it all out there. And then the other thing, you, you got to test yourself. You got to push yourself. You got to do things that make you a little bit uncomfortable. That sharpens you. That's where you grow. That's where you get new experiences. That's where you make new friendships is by taking a little risk. And I don't mean just physical risk, like bungee jumping or weird, crazy stuff like that. Maybe talking to someone that might deny you. Maybe just going for something when you're not sure it'll work out. Take a little risk. Thank you for listening. Please share the Art of Visuals podcast with your friends and make sure to hit that subscribe button. Sharing is caring. You can follow Art of Visuals on Instagram at Art of Visuals or sign up for the Art of Visuals newsletter on artofvisuals.com. Join us next episode for more, but until then, let's continue to visually inspire the world together.